Welcome back to Bible Time, Colossians 2.13, the final part there, having forgiven you all trespasses, where we left off last time. Then we get into Colossians 2.14, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. This message today is forgiveness of sins, or the operation of forgiveness of sins. <coughs> We're going to look at how God can forgive a sinner. And if you have not heard it before, looked into the study on verse 13, I encourage you to do that, to get a concept of what the Bible says about our sins, to try and get a biblical perspective of our sin. Repentance has been, there's been much said about repentance that's um, false, um, probably far more said about it that's false than is accurate. Repentance is a turning but the turning that a sinner makes in repentance, which this is not the study. We'll study this eventually, Lord willing. But whenever repentance, whenever the Bible talks about repentance, repentance is an aligning of my perspective with God's perspective that results in an aligning of my will, my mind, and my emotions of my body with God's will and God's mind and God's emotions. And that's kind of a complicated um, longer definition, but the reality is that repentance is the change of perspective of the heart of a man where the man no longer sees himself compared amongst other men, but he sees himself compared to God's holiness and God's righteousness. And with that new perspective, he turns in agreement with that perspective and that turning that happens in the heart is the repentance that is demanded in the Bible. That's why it says to repent and believe the gospel. It does not say repent and pay tithes. It does not say repent and change your clothes. It does not say repent and um, put a longer shirt on. Repent and go to church three times a week. It says repent and believe the gospel. The repentance of the Bible is a heart repentance. And the heart repentance results in a life repentance. Some men say repentance is not in the New Testament. It's not for the New Testament believer. It was just a kingdom thing that Jesus preached to the Jews. But Acts 17, I believe it is, says that God commandeth all men everywhere to repent. And that was the Apostle Paul preaching to the Greeks on Mars Hill. And he said, God commandeth all men everywhere to repent. The book of Luke says that Jesus taught that repentance and remission of sins should be preached throughout all the earth. Jesus' great commission was to preach repentance. If you are not preaching repentance and you call yourself a preacher of the gospel, you are lying. And if you persist in it, a liar who persists in his lying is a, a man who persists in his lying is a liar. And any man who will preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and exclude repentance purposefully willfully is a false prophet now which one are you if you deny repentance i don't know where are you at are you in absolute ignorance or are you in total rebellion to the word of god i've given you scriptures today you go search them out for yourself jesus christ said to preach repentance now repentance aligning myself with god's perspective is necessary to understand any of the rest of god's perspective until you see yourself the way God sees you, you cannot see God the way that God would like you to see God. 
Your eyes will be holden. Your vision will be blurred. Your ability to comprehend biblical truth will be completely hindered until you agree with God as to his perspective of your sin and how he sees you dead in your trespasses and sins. Our last two broadcasts, our last two podcasts were specifically about being dead in our sins. And you can go online and look those up. It says here in verse 13, having forgiven you of having forgiven you all trespasses. It says there, and you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Go to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 31. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that you'd illuminate our understanding today. I pray that your Holy Spirit would convince men of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, that you would get glory and honor, that you would exalt your Son, Jesus Christ. Do it, Lord, we pray for Christ's sake and not for our own. In Jesus' name, amen. So Matthew 12, 30, Jesus Christ said, He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. Wherefore I say unto you, All manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him, but whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. Either make the tree good and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt, for the tree is known by his fruit. O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. A good man out of the good treasure of the heart bringeth forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. <coughs> now, as he talked to the people here in Matthew 12 about the blasphemy of the Holy Ghost, a lot of people get hung on that right there. We're not studying that in any kind of depth today, the purpose of looking at that passage was to look at forgiveness and unforgiveness, and that will be our focus. I do just want to say that here the scribes and the Pharisees had accused Jesus Christ of having an evil spirit. Mark 3.28, Jesus said, All sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wherewith soever they shall blaspheme, but he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation, because they said he hath an unclean spirit. So Jesus Christ warned the scribes and Pharisees that they were in danger of eternal damnation, that what they were saying against the Holy Ghost was putting them on the razor edge of cutting them off from all hope of mercy and all hope of forgiveness. Some people teach a universal salvation. They believe that because Christ died for all men, then all men are saved. All men will go to heaven when they die. But what they have failed to deal with is this concept that's clearly taught in the Bible of forgiveness of sins. When someone does something that is a sin, 
and they, they transgress the law, there must be a payment for the transgression. There must be something to satisfy judgment. And whether that is the forgiveness of the individual, there must be a satisfaction of judgment. So, for example, if a man kills a young boy and he goes before the judge and he's standing there and the jury condemns him to death, the father and mother of that boy can go up to that murderer and forgive him. And they can forgive him completely and they can say, I hold nothing against this man. But that forgiveness from that person to that other person does not satisfy the demands of justice. So when the Bible talks about forgiveness of sins, it also uses the word remission of sins. What it's talking about is having your sins cleared completely. Not only God forgiving you the thought of sin, but God the judge. It's not just, God's not just some kind of hippie God up there, peace and love with everybody. And his forgiveness is not this cheap forgiveness that's just lip talk. God is holy and God is just. And in order to be cleared of your sin, when God forgives your sin, he's saying that he's taking you and separating you from your sin. He is removing the sin from you so that the just demands of the law are satisfied apart from you being judged for your sins. There's a question that I've asked before to some various people of different religious backgrounds, particularly that lean towards works. And I will ask them, how is a man justified from his sins before God? And usually if they're willing to talk at all, that question will open up the discussion right where it needs to be. And I thank God for giving me that question. It's been a helpful question. And pretty soon you'll find out whether or not that person is trusting in the grace of God by faith in Jesus Christ or whether they're trusting in their performance to save them, to get them justified of their sins. So here, Jesus told the scribes and Pharisees that some people will never have forgiveness. He told them that some people's sin will never be forgiven them, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. There's a concept out there being taught by cults and false religions of annihilation where a man is, when he dies, if he is in sin, he goes to hell and is burnt up and that that's the end of it. But God says here that they will never have forgiveness, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. And Jesus taught about an eternal hell, an eternal damnation, an eternal suffering, an eternal torment that awaits the damned whenever they have rejected the Holy Ghost. Now, we can study this in detail another time, and Lord willing, we do. But the essence of the blasphemy of the Holy Ghost, you studied out for yourself, is that whenever the Holy Spirit of God does the work that he, only He can do in drawing a lost man to Christ and woos that man to Christ and illuminates his mind to the truth of the gospel and begins to open his understanding. By the way, listen to me. You think somebody can get saved just because they pray a prayer. You think somebody can just walk up and pray a prayer anytime they want to. You're absolutely wrong. The Bible does say today is the day of salvation. But without the Holy Spirit of God illuminating a man's heart and mind, a man will never see or understand the gospel. Men are dead, the Bible says, in trespasses and sins. And that is literal death in a spiritual sense. And the spiritual is more literal to God than the physical. 
That man in his death and his trespasses and sins cannot see God. He cannot receive the things of God. He cannot hear the voice of God. He cannot understand the word of God. He cannot deal with his sins before God. So that man who is dead in his trespasses and sins, and again, we need to study this out, and we'll have to study it out another day. The word of God, it's all through the word of God. Peter talked about how the day star dawns in your hearts, and what happens in the regeneration of a lost man, the Holy Spirit of God comes first, as Jesus says, to convince men of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And when they reject the Holy Ghost for the last time, which is something we don't have the book on, God does, we can't see that, God sees it. But whenever a man rejects the wooing of the Holy Ghost, whenever a man in his heart even, speaks blasphemy against the Holy Ghost and rejects the wooing of the Holy Spirit, he cuts himself off from grace at that point. You say, I don't believe that. I say, I can't help you then. Just go to your Bible and read it. If you've got Bible for what you believe, we've got grounds to have a discussion. I'm not interested in arguments. But as long as we've got Bible and we can look at the Bible, uh, we can talk. So here the Word of God says, that he that speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. Now, some of you have had family feuds. If you've got any Irish blood in you, you know a lot about family feuds. If you've got any Scots blood in you, Scotch blood, you know about family feuds. Nobody has feuded in this whole world quite like the Scotch and Irish have feuded. They will fight for generations because somebody's great-grandma said something mean to somebody else's great-grandma. And there will be hundreds of dead people for hundreds of years as the families battle it out. It's a pretty horrible thing. And that is the unforgiveness of man. That is just the unforgiveness of temporal, carnal, physical man. What we're talking about today is the forgiveness of sins or, by nature of this discussion, the lack of forgiveness of sins from an almighty God, a holy, eternal, ever-existing God who always was and always will be. If God Almighty forgives you your sins, your sins are forgiven eternally. But if that same holy God will not forgive your sins, then your sins are not forgiven eternally. And that feud between you and God will go on for eternity. And your part in the feud will be to writhe in the lake of fire in pain and agony and utter destruction for all of eternity because the Bible says, hath never forgiveness. And it says, it shall not be forgiven him. There is nothing in this world more important to you and to me than the forgiveness of sins. Go to Matthew chapter 18 and verse 21. Matthew 18 and verse 21. Here's another example of human forgiveness. Then, Peter, then came Peter to him and said, Lord... How oft shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Till seven times? Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, he did the books. That's what it means. When he'd begun to reckon, we talk about reckoning up the books. That's doing the math. 
making the books, balancing the budget. Verse 24, And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him which owed him 10,000 talents, but for as much as he had not to pay. There was no way he could pay his debt. Look at verse 25. His Lord commanded him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. Now you know as well as I know that if a man is cast into a debtor's prison and cannot work to pay a debt, his hope of paying the debt is as gone, more gone than it ever was before. And this is a picture of hell. Whenever a man has rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ and goes on in his obstinate, willful rebellion against God, and you say, what about the people that don't know? There are no people who don't know enough to come to God. They don't exist. The Bible says that the sound of the gospel has gone out into all the earth. There is no man, woman or child on the face of this earth who if they today in their heart turn to the creator God with all their heart and seek him that they will not find him. God has promised it and God has given us examples to back it up where God has moved heaven and earth to save the soul of some poor sinner in the back of some unreached land somewhere where he had no hope of getting the gospel and God has moved heaven and earth to save those sinners. A seeking savior and a truly seeking sinner will not be long apart. When a man willfully rebels against the gospel of Jesus Christ and he goes on to his judgment day, he will be cast into prison, into the lake of fire, and he will not come out thence until he has paid the uttermost farthing. But what can he do to pay for his sins while he writhes in agony in hell? Suffering does not pay for your sins. You cannot suffer enough to pay for your sin. So that eternal lake of fire, that debtor's prison, that hell that the Bible talks about, hell itself will be cast into the lake of fire, is a place where the sinner who has never been forgiven will suffer for eternity until they pay their sin, but it won't pay their sin to be there. They will never get it paid off. They will exist in an eternal state of misery and of suffering. It is a horrifying thought. It is a reality that the Bible teaches. It is a reality that should drive us, if we're Christians, to warn the lost. It is a reality that should drive us as lost people to the foot of the cross. It is a reality that is fearful. It is a reality that is fact. Jesus Christ preached about hell over and over again. Now here in this text about forgiveness, <clears throat> excuse me, this is, Jesus is not teaching directly about hell. The concept there, the application that we took out of there holds, but if you try and interpret hell into this passage and make it all about hell, you're going to have a doctrinal problem. So please don't go to that extreme. Now it says here, the servant therefore fell down and worshipped him saying, Lord, have patience with thee and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants which owed him a hundred pence. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat saying, pay me that thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him saying, have patience with me and I will pay thee all. And he would not, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. 
So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt, because thou desirest me. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth, and delivered him to the tormentors, till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. Now Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2 gets again into the forgiveness of sins by God. We looked at some forgiveness by men. We looked at how God requires that we forgive others. And that has to do with repentance, aligning our perspective with God's perspective that changes our life. Faith without works is dead. Jesus is not saying you go to heaven by forgiving other people. But if you are saved by the grace of God, you will forgive other people. You will have a forgiving heart. Mark chapter 2 says, And again he entered into Capernaum after some days, and it was noised that he was in the house. And straightway many were gathered together, insomuch that there was no room to receive them, no, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. By the way, Jesus Christ is a preacher. The modern hippie Jesus, who is a healer, who's a dance around the stager, who's a long-haired hippie that loves you in your sin and doesn't demand repentance, is not the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible was a preacher of the Word of God. The healing ministry was given as a manifestation that he was the Son of God. And they come unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Who, why did this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? Now the blasphemous part was that they did not believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. Otherwise, they were perfectly 100% dead on orthodox in their doctrine. Only God can forgive sins. And if Jesus Christ is not God, then what he said and did was the act of a presumptuous false prophet. But Jesus Christ went on. And immediately, when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, the Holy Spirit tattled on, Jesus, on them to Jesus. And Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves. He said unto them, Why reason ye these things in your hearts? Whether is it easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise, and take up thy bed, and walk. Get this. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. He saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, and take up thy bed, and go thy way into thy ho thine house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed, and glorified God, saying, We never saw it in this fashion. Jesus Christ came to call sinners to repentance. Look at verse 17. 
he spoke to them and said, They that are whole have no need of, a, of the physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now this repentance, this turning from sin, would be utterly useless if God did not have power to forgive us of our sins. Now God is holy, God is just, and God will not overlook sin. He will not ignore sin. Sin must be paid for in full. And you've got to understand this to understand the gospel. Sin must be paid for. And we looked at it in how that we are dead in trespasses and sins. And therefore can do nothing to alleviate our condition as sinners in the eyes of God. We looked at the word of God where it says that the plowing of the wicked is an abomination to God. Just going to work every day in your sins is a sin against Almighty God. The thought of foolishness is sin. Just one stupid thought is sin. The Bible says every idle word that man speaks will he give account of at the day of judgment. Our sins are many and multiplying. And every day that we live dead in our trespasses and sins only puts us further from any hope of ever satisfying the demands of God. You say, so why would God cast a man into hell if he has no hope of paying his sins in hell? The difference between hell and earth for a lost man and for God. On earth, a lost man can continue to sin against Almighty God. He can continue to act in his stubbornness, in his pride, in his apathy, in his arrogance. He can continue to try to thwart the gospel of God. He can continue to, be, to follow the spirit that worketh in the children of disobedience. And therefore, when a sinner is alive on the face of the earth, he is, as the Bible says it, treasuring up wrath against the day of judgment. He's got a savings account that is going to mature, and it's gathering interest. And every day that he adds sin to that account, adds more wrath and more judgment, building exponentially against him, against the day of judgment. But when that sinner is cast into the lake of fire, they can no longer add sin to their account. They are now in judgment of their sin and the continuation and the propagation and the fulfillment of sin and the passing on of sin and the adding to sin and the filling up of the wrath of sin is put at a standstill. So God... In his righteousness and holiness will take a sinner who is dead in trespasses and sins, who is only adding to his debt on a daily basis, and when they have refused the wooing of the Holy Ghost and turned their ear away from the law and turned their back on God and stiffened their neck to the word of God, he will cast them into the lake of fire for all of eternity where they will no longer be able to act on the rebellion that is in their heart. That's the difference. The rebellion against God will be cut off in its effect. And they will be under the judgment of a righteous God. You say, but they can't do anything to pay for their sin in hell. No, but they can't do anything to act on it in hell either. 
And that's the only place left for them because all they can do is act on their sin. So God cuts them off from the ability to continue to act on their sin. You say what you want to about that. That's what the Bible teaches. And who art thou that repliest against God? Now, go to Luke 23 quickly. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke 23 and verse 34. <clears throat> there are many, 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 many more verses on forgiveness. Study them out. I've tried to just get a sampling of some of the topics of repentance here and how it's presented in the Word of God. Let's look at Luke 23, 34. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. This is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Jesus being nailed to the cross, hanging there on the cross, while the soldiers parted his raiment and cast lots, said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now we're talking today about the forgiveness of sins. We're talking about the operation of the forgiveness of sins. In order for God to forgive sins, sin has to be paid for. The sin has to be paid for. And right here in verse 34, Jesus on the cross says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And we're going to look at this cross in more detail as we look at Colossians 2.14 here. Look at chapter 24 of Luke and verse 47. Jesus Christ opened their understanding in verse 45 that they might understand the scriptures. And again, you cannot understand the scriptures until Christ does this for you. You seek him, you should seek him and cry out to him for mercy and ask him to open your understanding of the scriptures. Ask and ye shall receive, seek and ye shall find, knock and the door shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh the door shall be opened unto him. Now, he opened their understanding and he said, and said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behoved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. That repentance and remission of sins should be preached. Now this remission of sins is forgiveness of sins. These two work perfectly together. The remission of sins is the clearing of the sins of the guilty. The removal of the sins from his account. The taking away, as it says in Colossians chapter, 2 verse 14 look at it it says in verse 13 having forgiven you all trespasses blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us which was contrary to us and took it out of the way this is what remission is taking out of the way taking the sins out of the way the bible says that god loves man and that god would receive man but it says your iniquities have separated you from the lord Forgiveness of sins takes away the iniquities and gives you access to God through Jesus Christ. Help us today, Lord. Have mercy and help us. It says, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Go to Acts 2.38. Acts 2.38. 
Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. Turn there in your Bibles. I encourage you, if you're listening to this podcast, if you can, have your Bible ready. Turn there yourself. Follow along in the Scriptures. If your Bible doesn't say the same thing as my Bible, start studying it out and figure out why and figure out which Bible's right. Because they can't both be right. And they don't both say the same thing. So figure out which one is right and then stick with it. Now, Acts 2.38. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. I know this verse is, has been so championed by a sect of believers to further their cause of trying to preach baptismal regeneration that people can't even hear the rest of the verse anymore. This is the one of the only places in the Bible that even comes close to sounding like getting baptized saves you. And if you look at the rest of the verses about baptism, and I challenge you to do it, baptism does not save you, cannot save you. You've only got one hope of salvation, and that is right here in the text, for the remission of sins. You will not, cannot be saved until God remits your sins. There must be a remission of sins. Now, Acts 3.19, he says, repent ye, repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. And that starts to take us into the next section. But again, just to throw something out, just to throw a rock at a dog, if you're going to preach baptismal regeneration, how come Peter didn't preach it every time he preached it? Even if you try and twist Acts 2.38 into saying you've got to be baptized to be saved, he didn't say it hardly anywhere else even remotely like that. And you can't find it anywhere else in the Gospels. You can't find it anywhere else in the, in the whole epistles of God. Mark 16 says that you must repent and be baptized. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And obviously... By clear Bible, it gives you that he that believeth not shall be damned. Baptism is important, don't get me wrong. We studied baptism. Go back and look up that. We'll study it more, Lord willing, as we continue to find verses that deal with it. Kind of getting on a rabbit there. Let's get back on our subject. And it is a big deal. You say it's not a big deal. Why are you fussing about baptismal regeneration? Because it's a big deal. If your, if your baptism saves you, then grace is no more grace because you have saved yourself through the act of getting dunked and you've got to have the right guy dunk you and the right church dunk you and get dunked in the right place and now you're adding rules and you're adding to the scripture and next thing you know, you've got another gospel. I've got a man who I, who I love dearly who told me once that he had a good friend who was part of that sect that believes in baptismal regeneration and that man said, no, we're saved by grace. He said, the only difference between me and you is that we just emphasize the baptism. He said, some people say, repent and be baptized. And other people say, repent and be baptized. That's not true at all. 
That's a total misrepresentation. The doctrine of baptismal regeneration places the work of salvation on the baptism of the individual and it gives the church the authority and power to save souls in the place of Jesus Christ and it is a lie out of the devil's hell and it's going to take people to hell. Doesn't mean I don't love you and it doesn't mean that just because you're in one of those churches you're lost but it does mean you're horribly confused and you've been beguiled and enticed. Just like Paul is warning you here in Colossians chapter 2, beware lest any man spoil you after the traditions of men and not after Christ. Acts 3.19, he says, Repent ye therefore and be converted. Now in Colossians he says, Having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us. Now this handwriting of ordinances being blotted out is kind of alluded to by Peter here in Acts chapter 3. And again, this isn't just Peter talking. This is the Holy Spirit of God speaking through a holy man of God. Peter said the words that God Almighty spoke through Peter. He says, Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. Now, the timing of this blotting out is important. He says, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord, and he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. What is Peter talking about? He's, he's preaching this Jesus, and the times of refreshing that he's preaching, he's preaching to the nation of the Jews, read your context. And by the way, that'll help you through this whole Bible if you'll just read the context. Who is he talking to? Who's saying it? Where are they at? What's going on? He says here to the Jews, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord, and what are those times? Those times are, verse 21, that the times of restitution of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. What he's talking about is the second coming of Jesus Christ. He's talking about a future judgment. He's talking about a day when the earth is dissolved and the heavens are dissolved with a fervent heat and all men stand before God. Go to Revelation chapter 20 and look at this. There are books, and we've got to get this down. If you want to understand forgiveness, you need to understand that God keeps books. We talk about people who have their little black book. In the old days of the mafia, the old days of the mafia, we've still got mafia today. They're all over this nation in every arena of life. But in the old days of the mafia, they'd carry around a little black book. And the old mob boss, he'd have a black book. And he'd be doing business with somebody and they'd say, no, no, I'm not going to do it for that price. And he'd pull out his little black book. And a lot of times, as soon, all he had to do was pull out that book and whoever that was, let's say he wanted to buy a piano for his wife. And the man at the piano store says, this piano is worth $12,000. And that man says, you know what, I'll give you two for it. I'll give you 2000 And that piano salesman starts, no, I can't do that. No, that doesn't work. I'll, I might come down to 11, and the guy says, ah, I'd do three. And he says, I'll come down to 10. And that mob boss pulls out his little black book. And all of a sudden, that man, that piano salesman says, I'll take two for it. Give me 2000 I'll be glad to sell it, and we'll deliver it for you. Do you want another piano? 
What happened? You see, in the days of the mafia, that little black book, he would write down the names of people he was mad at. He would write down the names of people he had ought against, that he had offense with. And he'd take that little book with him, and if you had your name in that book, he was keeping track of how you treated him. And everybody in the town knew that if you got your name in that book too many times, then the mafia would send somebody after you. And you might get lucky and only get your legs broken, literally. But if you got your name in that black book one time too many, they would come and grab you and throw you in the back of a car and drive you out to the city dump and shoot you in the back of the head and throw you in the dump. So that mob boss would pull out that little black book where he would write down the things he was not forgiving and he would not forgive those mob bosses. And they ruled by terror of not forgiving Some people like to accuse God of this, but I'm telling you today, we're talking about the forgiveness of God. We have a forgiving God, a God full of long suffering, a God full of mercy, a God who doesn't have a little black book that's just done based on pure whim. It's not a little notepad. He didn't leave us just to wonder what's going to offend him and what's not going to offend him. God gave us his revealed will in the 66 perfectly inspired, perfectly preserved, holy, infallible word of God that we have in the King James Bible in the English language. We've got it right here. God's given us the book and he's told us what offends him and he's told us how to have forgiveness and redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ. But if you won't come God's way I want to tell you today about some other books go to Revelation chapter 20 and I saw a great white throne in him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them and I saw the dead small and great stand before God and the books were opened and another book was opened which is the book of life. Now the mob boss has his little black book. God's got his little white book. The book of life. And oh, if you get your name in that little white book, nobody can do anything to you. The exact opposite of what those hellish mob bosses do. And if you don't think that still goes on today, you're loony. You want to know why the White House is like it is. You want to know why Washington, D.C. is the cesspool it is. You want to know why this nation's going to hell in a handbasket. It's because our people have sold themselves to mob bosses because they're so afraid and they have no guts to stand and they're not willing to risk their finances or their bodies or their health for what's right. So they're willing to be completely controlled by mob bosses. And as long as you are willing to serve tyrants, tyrants are willing to rule you. Do you hear me? As long as you are willing to serve tyrants, tyrants are willing to rule you. That has always been the case since sin entered this world. And it always will be the case until the last tyrant, the Antichrist, is cast into the lake of fire. Here's the little book, the little book of life. But here are other books that were opened. And it says in verse 12, And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. There's books on what you're doing. 
There's books in heaven, and there are heavenly stenographers. A stenographer is the court clerk that sits at a little desk with a little book and a little pen and writes down every single word that everybody says in the courtroom. Every single word so that it can be recalled and judged. And the Bible says every idle word that man speaks will he give account of in the day of judgment. You have got an angel. Now a lot of people make a big fuss about angels. We're going to get more into angels. Angels are coming up. In Colossians, it talks about a worshiping of angels. We're going to get into angels some. It's coming. This book is an awesome book. It's a wonderful book. It's an exciting book, and we're going to get into angels. But here, let me tell you, everybody wants to say, oh, you've got an angel. Well, let me tell you about your angel. You've got an angel that sits in the courtroom of heaven and writes down every single thing that you do. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Every single thought that you think, God sees and God has it written down. Every single word that you say, God hears it and he has it written down. Every single thing, Ewan. Every single thing. You've got an angel writing down in heaven. There's all those, all those stupid, wicked songs about Santa Claus that teach your children. Oh, you shutting me off right now. That teach your children that Santa Claus is omniscient and omnipotent. And that he'll give you good things if you do good works and bad things if you do bad works. It is designed by Satan to teach your children false doctrine. And get them to think about God in the wrong way. Oh, Santa Claus, oh, he sees when you've been naughty. He knows when you've been good. And on and on the song goes, and I'm butchering it up. And we sing about it. We sing about Santa Claus is coming to town in this country. And we talk about it and act like Santa Claus knows. And you're going to get coal in your stocking if you're a bad boy. Let me tell you something today. God Almighty is not Santa Claus. And his angels are not elves. God is holy, and his ministers, his angels, are flaming fire. And they're writing down in heaven, in the holy books of God, every idle word, every thought, every action, every deed. When you thought nobody could see you, the angels in heaven are writing down in detail every act and thought and word that you have committed. And he will bring it all out in the open. Study your Bible. You show me if it's not so from the word of God. I'll show you that it is so from the word of God. This is why forgiveness of sins is absolutely vital. If you still sit and say, I have no sins, the Bible says you are a liar. Here the books were opened, and these dead were judged according to their works. Verse 13, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every man, according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And look at this final result in verse 15, And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Not one of the people, not one of the dead that stand before God at this judgment seat makes it. They're judged by their works 
And by their works, they're condemned. And by their works, and because of their works, they're cast into the lake of fire. Amongst them are ones like Mother Teresa, some of the saints this world calls saints, some of the greatest, most altruistic humanists, some of the greatest religious personages, some of the greatest people in the history of the world that have done the most good for mankind will be cast into the lake of fire because they failed to lay hold on the forgiveness of God for their sins. Their names were not written in the Lamb's book of life. The books of our sins relate directly to the law of God. The law is perfect and holy and good, the Bible says. And these books relate directly, directly to the law of God. The law of God, well, let's just look at it. God is keeping these books. Let's go to the next point here. Colossians 2.13. He says, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances. We just talked about that. That was against us which was contrary to us. So these books relate to directly the law of God. Go to Romans chapter 7. God has given us his law as a divine act of mercy. Many people look at God as condemning and wrathful because he gave us the law. When the reality is it's God's mercy and long-suffering that induced him to condescend to give man a copy that he could read of his law so that man could know his condition before God and so that man could act before that final and fearful day of the wrath of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. By the way, that one on the great white throne of judgment is Jesus Christ himself. He said, the Father hath committed all judgment unto the Son. Romans chapter 7. He hath committed all judgment unto the S-O-N, Son. Romans seven twelve. Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid, but sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. Now Paul is not teaching here that God made sin more sinful to himself by giving us the law. God is holy. God is unchanging. God is eternal. Jesus Christ is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He always was, he always has been, and he changes not. What the law did was it made the law that made our sin exceeding sinful to us. It changed our perspective of our sin before a holy God. That is the purpose of the law. The Bible says the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Now, if we go to Romans 5 and verse 15, it says, because the law worketh wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Because the law worketh wrath. We're talking here in verse 2.13 about the fact that the handwriting of ordinances, that was against us, which was 
contrary to us. We need to get the reality sunken deep into our hearts that the handwriting of the ordinances, the God, the word of God itself, and the books in heaven of our own actions and of our own works stand against us and condemn us, and that the wrath of God is hanging over our heads for our sin. Galatians 3. Galatians chapter 3. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law. And hallelujah for that. Being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Look at verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. The law is not wrong. The law is not ungodly. Jesus did not change his mind when he became a man and brought grace to the world. The law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Nowhere in the Bible does it teach that Jesus Christ broke God's law. Nowhere does it teach that he denied God's law. Nowhere does it teach that he undid the law. What Jesus did, what he did by bringing us grace was to fulfill the law. It says as many as are under the law are under the curse. Why? Why are you under the curse? Because the law says cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. There are over 600 ordinances, over 600 laws in the Bible. In the Old Testament. How many have you kept perfectly? It says cursed. Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. It says where there is no law, there is no transgression. So I don't know the law, so I'm safe, right? Wrong! Where there's no law, there's no transgression. In your own estimation, in your own understanding, you're in a state of ignorance where you don't understand the law of God and therefore you do not know that you are transgressing. And that is what the interpretation of the scripture is if you compare it to other scriptures. No scripture is given by any private interpretation. We are not allowed to have our own private interpretations. The Bible interprets the Bible. The Bible interprets the Bible. The commandment came that sin might be exceeding sinful. And the Bible says here in Galatians chapter 3 verse 24, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. If man was living in some state of ignorant, innocent bliss, and if man in his ignorance was going to escape hellfire and go to heaven, the cruelest thing God could have ever done was to show us the law. 
But this is not the case. And it is not what the word of God teaches. That we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And as dead men to the righteousness and holiness of God. We had no perception. No ability to understand our desperate state. And our great need. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Headed to a devil's hell. But with no ability to even comprehend that we had offended a holy God. So God gave us the law, and he gave us the law to show us that our sin is exceedingly sinful. Galatians 2 and verse 16 says, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. The law worketh wrath, cursed. As many as are under the law are under the curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone that continueth not in every Word to keep it. Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. James says he that transgresseth in one point is guilty of all. The ordinances we need to see from Colossians here were against us. Contrary to us. You had papers served at court. Now a man may break the law and think he's gotten away with it. And he may be going on his merry way, living his life, going to work, making a living, paying his bills, and he doesn't even know there's a warrant out for his arrest. But it doesn't change the fact that the warrant is there. And one day he's driving along, Ignorant of the righteousness of the law. Ignorant of his transgression. But the law is not ignorant. And the judge is not ignorant. And here he goes driving down the road. And he does something silly and simple. And he forgets to put his seatbelt on. And he drives by a state trooper. The state trooper whips out. Turns on the blinking red and blue lights. And pulls him over on the side of the road. And he walks up to him. He runs the plate. And he goes, mm-hmm, hmm hmm and he sees there's a warrant out for this man's arrest. That man's sitting there, and he's just trying to go to work. He's, he doesn't even run away because he doesn't even know there's a warrant. He doesn't even know he's in trouble. And that police officer walks up there, and he says, let me see your license and registration, please. And that man hands him that license and that registration, and that man sitting there doesn't even know there's five more state troopers coming. And they're coming from the north and the south and the east and the west. And they're coming from every direction. And they're coming to apprehend him because he has offended the law. And there is a warrant out that is contrary to him. That is against him. And he's about to be apprehended. And he doesn't even know it. State trooper goes back to his car, sits down, gets on the radio. And he says, I've got him. 
This is him. He's sitting in the car right in front of me, and he doesn't even know what's about to happen to him. And the net of the law circles around him and tightens around him, and that officer comes up to him again, and he thinks he's about to get his little ticket or maybe get a warning, a little slap on the wrist because he didn't put on his seatbelt. And the officer says, I'd like you to step out of the car, please. Man isn't sure what's going on. He says, what's going on, officer? He says, just please step out of the car. Keep your hands where I can see them. And the man starts to get a little feeling something's not right. And doesn't know what to do or what to say. If he doesn't step out of the car, it's going to get real bad real fast. So he steps out of the car. Officer says, put your hands behind your back. And the man puts his hands behind his back and he feels the cold steel. Of handcuffs snap around his wrists. Next thing you know, he's in the back of a state trooper's car. And he's on his way to stand before the judge. Because there was a writing of ordinances that was against him. That was contrary to him. And he didn't even know it. As many as are under the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Let's look at the next part of our verse. It says that Jesus Christ, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us. This is what forgiveness of sins is. Jesus Christ blotting that out, wiping it away, taking it away. Imagine the man shows up before the judge and the judge says, Officer, you got the wrong guy. He says, No, that can't be true. And the judge says, You got the wrong guy. His offense has been paid for in full. That's what Jesus Christ has done for those that believe. And how did he deal, do this? Look at the next part. And took it out of the way nailing it to his cross. He took that which was contrary to us, that which was against us, though it was holy, though it was right, though it was good, because of our sins and our iniquities, we had been separated from God, and God's law declared our condition and our need. But Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary took it out of the way and nailed it to his cross. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. Go there quickly. Help us, Lord. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually, make the comers thereunto perfect. The law has no power to make you good. It only has power to condemn you when you sin. And I sinned. And I have sinned. And I need forgiveness of my sins. And that's what we're studying today. The forgiveness of sins. Verse 2. For then... If the law could make you perfect, for then would they not have ceased to be offered? Wouldn't they have stopped if it had worked? Because that the worshipers, once purged, should have no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance, again, made of sins every year. And by the way, if you say you keep the Old Testament law, and you've got tassels on your coat, and you've got tassels on your belt, I love you in Christ, and I want God's best for you. I'm not mad at you. I don't hate you, and you can even come to church. 
and I'll put my arm around you and I'll welcome you in. But you are absolutely ignorant of God's righteousness. Those parts of the Old Testament law were so much less important than the sacrifices. The sacrifices were the part that pointed to the forgiveness of sins. And the sacrifices themselves cannot take away sins. And you say you keep the law, but you don't keep the sacrifices. You're lying to yourself. Give it up and come to Christ who alone can forgive sins on earth. It says, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Follow along in verse 5 of Hebrews chapter 10. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. We're talking about the operation of forgiveness. How can a holy God write off a man's sins that he justly deserves penalty for? This is how a body hast thou prepared me. Verse 6, In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Please, don't turn me off in your hearts and minds. Follow along in the word of God. Please ask God to show you and get your face in the Bible. Sit up, sit forward, pay attention. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 6. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, lo, I come. This is Jesus Christ. This is how you follow along. Then said I, lo, I come. In the volume of the book, from the start in Genesis to the end in Revelation, in the volume of the book, it is written of me. To do thy will, O God, above when he said sacrifice and offering and burnt offering and offering for sin, thou wouldest not, neither had pleasure therein which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first. It says here in the word of God that he took it out of the way. And it says here in Hebrews 10 that he took away the first that he may establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Hallelujah. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. How are you going to be forgiven of your sins? You say you keep the law. You say you go to church. You say you do good works. But how will your sins be paid for at judgment day? Those not even the offerings, not even the sacrifices can take away sins. You try to keep the feasts. You you try to keep the Sabbath. You put tassels on your coat. You won't shave the corners of your beard. You've got a form of godliness. But you're not even doing the sacrifices. And the sacrifices themselves cannot take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. By for, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. What good does a perfect creature need for a law that was given by, because of transgressions? 
The law was given because of transgressions. Ye are complete in Christ, the apostle said in Colossians, in Christ. If you're not in Christ, you're not complete. But if you're not in Christ, you have no hope. In Christ, you are complete because he by one offering, hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. If you can lose your salvation, why don't you lose it? Because it's not going to get you to heaven. There's only one salvation that can get you to heaven, and it's an eternal salvation, an eternal, perfect sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ on the old hill called Calvary where he bled and he died so that we can have redemption in him through his blood. It says, whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us for after that he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds will I write them and their sins and their iniquities will I remember. No, more he took them out of the way having forgiven you all trespasses blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us which was contrary to us and took it out of the way he took it out of the way now where remission of these is there is no more sacrifice for sin, there is nothing else you can do or add to what Christ did because it's perfect and it's eternal. And if you can add to your perception of salvation, then you don't have the salvation that Jesus Christ offers because he offers a perfect eternal salvation where he writes his law in your hearts and in your mind. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh. Let's look at that real quick. This last part, nailing it to his cross. He took it out of the way. Hallelujah. Bless God. My sins are gone. What did he do with them? He nailed them to the cross. Having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Now, if he took it out of the way, but he didn't do something with it permanent, something with it that would end it forever, then that handwriting of ordinances could come back against us. But it says here he nailed it to his cross. Let's look at that Matthew 27 real quickly. Matthew 27 will be done shortly. Oh, that this might be the means by which God opens your eyes and your hearts to the gospel today. Matthew 27, verse 37. <clears throat> Let's look at verse 35. And they crucified him, speaking of Jesus Christ. Read the whole chapter if you have to, to understand the context. And they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. That crucifixion was on a cross. There's a whole attack on the cross of Jesus Christ today. The recent Catholic production of Jesus Christ's sufferings, his passion, 
portray Jesus Christ on some kind of webbing of reeds where they tied his hands up. Let me tell you something. That's a false cross because they have a false Jesus and a false Bible. And that's a false portrayal of what happened. Jesus was nailed to an old rugged cross. To an old rugged cross. The world hates the cross. The world hates the cross. And there he was nailed to the cross. And sitting down they watched him there and set up over his head his accusation written. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Now this was the way of the Romans. When they crucified a man, they would lay down the cross and have him and stretch his arms out upon the cross and drive the nails through his hands and through his feet. And they would take a plaque, a writing, a handwriting of ordinances that the man had offended, ways that he had broken the law, and they would nail it to the cross so that everybody that would go by would see the just recompense of the sin. The sin that Jesus Christ was accused of that was nailed to his cross. Read it here. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Where is the sin in that accusation? There is no sin in that. Because he was Jesus and he was the king of the Jews. And they nailed that accusation to the cross. But Jesus Christ had another accusation nailed to the cross. And that accusation is here in Colossians 2.13. That he, this handwriting of ordinances that was against us. My books of sin. My books of sin. When they drove those nails into Jesus Christ, God Almighty superimposed the books of my sins underneath his hands, underneath his feet. My sins were on that cross at Calvary. And those nails that drove through Jesus' hands went through his hands and they spurted blood. And that blood came out on the books that the soldiers couldn't see because they were spiritual books that are more real than most of the books you'll ever touch in your life. Than any of the books you'll ever touch. Except the Bible. Which is both spiritual and physical. Just like Jesus Christ. Because he is the word. And the blood of Jesus Christ was spilled. On the handwriting of ordinances. That was against me. That was contrary to me. And those ordinances were nailed to the cross. And the blood blotted out the trespasses and the sins that would have condemned me to hell. Instead, they were nailed to his cross. This is how Jesus took them away. And Jesus on the cross said, it is finished. And the veil of the temple was rent from top to bottom, showing us there was a new and living way not by works of righteousness which I have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. 
and through the blood of Jesus Christ and faith in the Lamb of God that taketh away, that taketh away, that taketh away the sins of the world. I have peace with God through my Lord Jesus Christ and I am justified and I am forgiven of my sins by judicial act and by just fulfillment of the holy righteous law of God by the sacrifice of God Jesus Christ the righteous hallelujah go to Ephesians chapter 3 this is the gospel nothing more nothing less this is the gospel you add to it he'll add to you the curses that are written in this book you take away from it and he'll take away your part your name out of the book of life you've got one hope and one way Jesus said I am the way the truth and the life no man cometh no man cometh to the father but by me no man cometh to the father but by me said Jesus Christ Ephesians 3 12 let's go to verse 11 verse 11 according to the eternal purpose we'll probably be back here tomorrow in this passage look at it a little closer according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access by the and access with confidence and access with confidence by the faith of him wherefore I desire that you faint not at my tribulations for you which is your glory for this cause I bow my knees unto the father of our Lord Jesus Christ of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of God which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages. World without him. World without end. Amen. Look at chapter 2. Verse 4, but God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ by grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit in, together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast.